As I suspect all of you know, it's a daily custom uh, in schools for students and uh, faculty to stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance at some point during, I believe, each school day, um, at least when schools were meeting in person. For those of you who are doing that, I suspect that's still a regular part of your day. Uh, we are um, learning virtually in our house, or, you know, virtually learning in our house, um, and we don't have the pledge as you would normally do. Um, I don't think I thought very much when I was a kid about what I was saying uh, when I was in grade school, when I would stand up and, and pledge allegiance to the flag. I didn't think very much of it as a way of declaring my loyalty to my nation, loyalty to my country, loyalty to my fellow Americans. I don't think I spent too much time thinking those things through. But that's what we think of when we think of pledging allegiance. Uh, because we are a, a nation that is by the people and for the people. When we pledge allegiance to the, the flag, it is to our, our nation, our, our system of government, our ideals, our, our, our people. In the ancient world, now not just completely across the board, but in the ancient world by and large, they thought of pledging allegiance not so much of, to a nation or a system of government, but to an individual as you might guess, to your king, to your emperor. What you see on the screen here, in theory, there we go, is an ancient stela. I think I'm saying that word right. That comes from the northern portion of Asia Minor. So if you think in our Acts class, where Paul had wanted to go before he was sent on the, to answer the Macedonian call, he wanted to push up further north. Um, and was not allowed to do so, that particular region there dates back to the year 3 BC. And what this records is an oath of loyalty that the citizens in that region were expected to pledge to Octavian, that is Caesar Augustus, who was their new emperor. And here's what this oath said. You as a citizen were to say these words, I swear by Zeus, the earth, the sun, all the gods and goddesses, and by Augustus himself, that I will be loyal to Caesar Augustus and his children and descendants all the time of my life in word, deed, and thought. I will reckon as friends those whom they might reckon as friends, and regard as enemies those that they might judge to be enemies." In defense of their interests, I will spare neither body nor soul, nor life nor children, but take any risk, whatever kind it may be, for their interests. And skipping a little for the sake of time. If I should do anything against this oath, or not precisely as I have sworn, I will raise for myself my own body, soul, and life, children, all of my family and my possession, destruction. And utter ruin. So I'm calling down destruction on myself if I break my oath. Extending to all those that succeed me and all my descendants. The land and the sea shall neither receive the bodies of my children or descendants, nor shall they bear them any fruit. Almost makes our Pledge of Allegiance look like a thumbs up. What do you think of that for a Pledge of Allegiance? Imagine the kids standing still through all of that. 
This is an oath of loyalty that was supposed to be sworn to this man because he's our king. He's our emperor. And by the way, at the top of this, it introduces basically what this, this uh, Stila records. Um, at the bottom of it, it talks about how this is the same pledge that, that a variety of other, that all across the empire has been pledged to the emperor. And interestingly enough, one of the places that it mentions as an example is Neapolis. Uh, if you've been in our Acts class, Neapolis is where he stops. That's the port he arrives in in Macedonia to then go on to Philippi, etc., etc. But it mentioned that city specifically. Um, if you're not in our Acts class, just, just file that one away. So he's our king, he's our emperor, and we are swearing by the gods, may they hold us accountable, that we will be loyal to him in our words, our deeds, and even our very thoughts. May all we do be in allegiance to him. And you notice it called citizens to declare, whoever are enemies of the emperor are my enemies as well. If they're his friends, they're my friends, because I am always going to be on his side. So that's what it meant in the ancient world to speak about loyalty to your king. You're on his side. And whoever is not on his side, then that person is not on your side either, because you're loyal to the king. The oath also called down judgment on the speaker and his family and his heritage, complete and utter ruin on his entire family line should he ever betray his oath. That's what it meant to pledge allegiance, at least in this particular portion in time of the ancient world. I tell you about these things because as Christians, you and I swear an oath of loyalty to if you are a Christian, you and I have sworn an oath of loyalty to Jesus as the Christ. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12 and following, where our scripture reading came from earlier, Paul is talking to Timothy about his confession of loyalty to King Jesus. And I want you to notice how he words things here. He says in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now that might catch your ear and you wonder, well, what's he mean there? Paul is telling Timothy to keep fighting the good fight and to maintain his loyalty to his king, to Jesus, and to keep the commitment of the good confession that he made, which he says was the same confession that Jesus made before Pilate. When Pilate stood before Pont or when Jesus, excuse me, stood before Pilate, he was asked, "Are you a king?" And our different versions kind of mangle the translation of this in a variety of different ways. Um, that kind of leads you to take it one way or another, or just, just, it's difficult and awkward to read in English, but effectively his answer is, it is as you say. Yes, I am a king. He goes on to explain his kingdom's not of this world, but nevertheless, it is as you say. What Paul is saying to Timothy is, when you made your confession that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, when you first obeyed the gospel, you remember when we talked about gospel and what that word is? It's been quite some time, but we've talked about that before, that that word gospel, that word that's basically the root behind evangelism and evangelizing and evangelist, a euangelion, a gospel, 
It's the word for not just good news, but good news of the king. So when you obeyed the good news of the king, you weren't just acknowledging and affirming that, yes, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Yes, I believe he's the son of God. When you first obeyed the good news that Jesus is king, you were confessing the same truth that Jesus did. He is king. And now Paul says, Timothy, you need to be sure to hold fast to that confession. He goes on to say in verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only, and I get a word I can pronounce here, sovereign, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortality or has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The last half of that has to grab your attention, the way that just sets off. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, alone has immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, etc. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That carefully constructed, expansive enumeration of praises is formally called a doxology. If you ever see the song that we have in our songbook, I believe, called doxology. That's what it's talking about as a statement of praise. And if you think about what that song says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. It's that formal declaration of praise. This doxology that Paul provides is a description of who and what Jesus is. And Timothy, this is the one whom you've confessed. The good news that he is king. That's the one that you've confessed. That's the news you've accepted and obeyed. So he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the only sovereign. And Paul wants Timothy to be absolutely diligent in his loyalty to him. To make sure you maintain your allegiance to the good confession that you made. Make sure you continue to show by the way that you live your life that you recognize who Jesus is. That he's the one to whom belongs all honor and dominion. And that you're going to be loyal to him. It is hard to think of a more poignant way and striking way to emphasize just how important it is for us to be loyal to King Jesus than what Paul has has written here. And what he says is that's what it was all about when you made your confession. So in other words, in our theme text for this year, Joshua declares before Israel that as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And you and I have declared, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, king. He is the son of God. I want you to see that those confessions and declarations of loyalty are one and the same. I want to look at Romans chapter 10 with you. You're probably familiar with these verses. They're talking about the same kind of ideas as in uh, 1 Timothy. The confession that we make. In Romans 10 verses 9 and following, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
part of what is involved in obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he is king, is confessing your faith in him, that he is God's anointed one. And that's why whenever someone wishes to be baptized, we ask them to declare that they believe Jesus is the son of God. You'll notice, though, what Paul is talking about in these verses is much more than just the statement that is made before a person is baptized. He is talking here, even in these words of confessing and believing, about something that we continue to do. Our loyalty to what we're confessing about Jesus. A loyalty that you demonstrate, not just in something that you say at the point of conversion, but something you live throughout your entire life. So it's a confession of Jesus as Lord that you and I are making every day that we are a Christian. So we are constantly confessing Jesus as Lord, constantly believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that he is the blessed and only sovereign, that he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. We make that good confession at our conversion. That's when we initially bend the knee in allegiance to King Jesus for the first time. But we continue to serve the king and we live a life that makes that same most excellent confession Every single day. So every day you and I declare our loyalty to him. He is Lord. And so as for me. And for my house if I have one. We will serve the Lord. So to say I believe Jesus is Lord. Is to say he is my Lord. To say yes I believe Jesus is the son of God. Means that he has everything that comes along with being that. He is God's anointed one. He is king means he's my king and i'm going to live in loyalty to him i'm going to hold fast to my confession because he is king so a few things about our confession a declaration of loyalty frankly to whomever but in this case as well and especially only means so much until it is tested. So it's pretty easy to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I'm going to follow him. But just saying that doesn't really mean I am loyal. And one of the ways you and I can learn whether or not our commitment truly is genuine is absolutely heartfelt is for it to be put to the test. And so if you would, I want to look at Luke 22. I can't think of a much better illustration of this particular point about loyalty truly being determined when it is tested than to look at the Apostle Peter. So in Luke 22, think back to your recollection of the Last Supper. Jesus has assembled with his disciples. There's this one final time that they're going to be together prior to him being arrested and crucified. So the last time they're going to be gathered together before he dies. And as he's talking to his disciples about all of what's to come uh, and about their, their perspective on things, he says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. The you in this particular case is plural, as a matter of fact, seeming to point to you lot, you disciples, that he may sift you again, you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, and now we're talking singular use, strengthen your brothers. 
Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, deny three times that you know me. So Jesus says, you're all going to be sifted like wheat. Your loyalty is going to be put to the test. And Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to stand with you. I'm ready even to die with you. And Jesus looks at him and just says, Peter, before morning, despite these bold exclamations and declarations you're making now, before morning, you're going to deny three times that you even know who I am. And you do know the rest of the story. You turn further in the same chapter here in Luke. Luke 22 is a very long chapter. You go on down to verse 56. Jesus is in the courtyard with uh, of the courtyard of the high priest. He's undergoing a part of his trial. And you've got masses of people that are there uh, witnessing what's going on. And Peter is, you can find Peter kind of slinking in the background. He's not standing with him at all. He's trying to watch what's happening, but be as inconspicuous as possible. And then he sits down next to a fire and it makes his face real easy to see. So verse 55. says, then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also I'm one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. That's hard enough to read, but honestly, the line that comes next, if you're looking at it in your own version, you already know, maybe you can recall from memory. It's just one of the most shocking things to read in all the Bible. What, what happens next? And it says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Um, I imagine maybe there was a time when you were younger and you disobeyed your parents in such a way that they were too disappointed in you to be the regular kind of mad at you. So it wasn't so much pulling their hair out as wiping tears from their eyes. And instead of that, you know, stern, you about to get it, kind of look that every parent can give their child, they look at you with, with hurt in their eyes as if your actions have betrayed them. And you're used to the anger, but not the hurt. Um, I suppose some will appreciate this reference, some won't, but I'm going to geek out for a moment. Um, In the sixth Harry Potter book, anybody read those books? Four. All right, we'll proceed. Dumbledore, the headmaster, needs Harry to have an important conversation with an important character who has information that they deeply need. And Harry's a teenager. He lets his mind get distracted with all the different things of school and all these precious opportunities slip him by. And times of the essence. And when he confesses this inactivity to Dumbledore, the, the headmaster quietly responds. And the book says Dumbledore had not raised his voice. He did not even sound angry. But Harry would have preferred him to yell. This cold disappointment was worse than anything. And if you've ever seen that look in your parents' eyes, 
and even wished they'd be mad at you instead of heartbroken over what you've done, then you know something of how Peter must have felt when Jesus turned and looked at him. So Peter declares adamantly for the third time, I don't even know who you're talking about. And the rooster is crowing before the words finish coming from his mouth. And obviously Peter realizes in shock and he turns toward the Lord and Jesus turns knowingly and looks at him. And Peter knows that he knows what Peter is doing, what he's just done. So you can imagine, I think, how this must have just ripped his heart out to have betrayed his master this way. And he went out and wept bitterly. So professions of loyalty, I believe that Jesus Christ is God's son. Those professions of loyalty to Jesus Christ the King, they mean plenty from the get-go because that's just how all Christians start. You don't start right in the middle of a test, usually speaking. You start with an acknowledgement of this great truth. And coming to that understanding and to that acknowledgement has been part of the journey for you already. But the real value of your faith, the real substance of it, isn't going to be known until it's put to the test. And that's when you prove what your devotion is made of. Or whether or not you have grown in the faith since that initial confession. Whether you've continued to live it. And it's become a part of who you are so much so that you could no sooner put that down than remove a body part. That's when you know your faith means something to you. When it is tested and not found wanting. So I might ask by means of making this particularly applicable. What is it? That puts your faith to the test. And what I mean by that is, what is it that makes it really hard for you to live as a Christian? Not when is it easy for you to be a Christian? When are you strong? I want you to think about when it is tough for you. Maybe those times when you have failed like Peter did here. When have those times been for you? What's going on in those times? What are the circumstances when it is hard for you to be truly loyal to Jesus Christ the King? What is going on that it is so hard your loyalty falters? Now logically, whatever the circumstance may be, it's when your will is not the Lord's will. So whatever the circumstances, whether it be a a tremendous period of suffering and you feel like giving in your will to, to... Uh, give in is different from the Lord's will to to bear up under that, lean on the Lord, and press forward. Um, If it is some kind of temptation, something you want to do that you're not supposed to do, or something you don't want to do that you're supposed to do, it's your will against the Lord's will. When are those times for you? Think about your life. When are your wishes typically not in sync with His? That's when it makes Christianity and loyalty to Jesus difficult. So speaking of suffering, we might not want to endure. Jesus himself says in his prayer in the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. What that shows you is that at that point in Jesus' life, his wishes on one level and the Father's wishes are not exactly in sync. Now he goes on to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So his willingness 
to adhere to the Father's will never wavers. And ultimately, he wants to do what God wants him to do. But there is a part of him that really wishes things could be a different way. And his actions show he's absolutely committed to the plan that they've had since before the beginning of time. But a part of him does not want to go through the suffering he's about to endure. He's being tested. As you know, of course, he is indeed faithful enough that he's going to go ahead and do whatever it is that the father wants. Which is what makes this such a great test of Jesus' loyalty to his father. That when it is hard, and when it was the most difficult for him, he was still unflappably loyal. So when is it difficult for us to be loyal to God? When are my wishes not in sync with God's wishes, with the wishes of my king? It's not hard to do the right thing when what God wants me to do, I also want to do. So many parents have had to tell their children You will sit at that table until every last vegetable on that plate is gone. If I sound like I've practiced that phrase a time or two, I have. Only five years of parenting or six or so, but got that one. But no one, I'm almost certain, has never needed to order their child. You will sit at that table until every last scoop of ice cream is clear from your bowl. And I don't want to see a puddle of chocolate syrup left behind either. You drain it till it's dry. And don't make me tell you again. It is not at all tough to do what you already want to do. It isn't tough to abstain from things that you don't want to do. But when you tell your kids you're not having any dessert until you get in your room and finish your homework. Different story. And when God wants us to do something that we enjoy, that we want to do anyway, that's not too much a test of our loyalty. I think it is, is um, admirable but, but somewhat misguided, the, 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 the thinking that some can develop that I am not spiritual unless I have developed my faith to the point that everything God wants me to do, I really want to do too. Now, yes, I need to align my will with his will, but sometimes the most spiritual person is the person who really doesn't want to do what God wants him to do, but he's most certainly going to do it anyway. That's when you prove your loyalty. So when is it hard for you to be a Christian? Is your loyalty to Jesus put to the test, for example, when you're not with with fellow Christians? You notice how much easier it is for Peter to make all of those bold statements of loyalty and this determination uh, or this declaration to Jesus earlier that night. Lord, I am ready even to die with you. And then all of a sudden in the courtyard, he sounds so much different. What's the difference? Well, when he's making all of those brave boasts, that's when he's right in the middle of his fellow disciples. I'm almost certain you have noticed how easy it is to be good, to be godly when you're here. But when you're around friends who are joking and talking about inappropriate things, that's when it's tempting to be crude. When you have time alone with your significant other, not your spouse, but your your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance, or you're alone with sinful content on an electronic device, that's when it's tempting to be immoral. When you're frustrated with your spouse, that's when it's tempting to act in the anger of man that does not produce the righteousness of God. Maybe that's when your loyalty to Christ is tested. 
Maybe your loyalty to Christ is tested when the teachings of Jesus become unpopular. I keep up with um, Florida College's Facebook page. It's where I went to school. I like to see the stuff that they're doing. It reminds me of when I was there. Uh, and I see all those kids and the devotionals that they're going to, the singings, the, the Bible studies, all the stuff that they're having. It's just really cool to look at. But seeing it also from time to time kind of makes it, it can be bittersweet. Because I think about how back when I was there, there I was with all of my friends, and we were in the same devotionals and Bible studies and, and just soaking in as much time with God's Word and God's people as we possibly can. And I think about how many people have left the Lord for the world since then. Just to the, the world's thinking on homosexuality alone, I have lost several Christian friends because they've given in to what the world thinks on that subject and they have compromised what the Bible teaches about it. And that's just one of the many teachings of Christ that are not popular today. And evidently it is easy to rationalize those away. And sometimes it's easy to rationalize them away because we don't want to offend somebody. And yet we've been warned. In Luke 9, verse 26, Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. So these are some of the times when our loyalty can truly be put to the test. Those also happen to be the times that you have an opportunity to prove to your king whether your professions of belief and allegiance were empty, if they were vain, or whether they had all the substance you could muster. I can easily and not easily say that I have failed my king more times than I could possibly count. It might be you feel the same way. When you talk about an earthly king like Caesar Augustus, he's not likely to be very willing to forgive actions of disloyalty on the part of his subjects. Jesus, on the other hand, is gracious. And he is a merciful sort of king like the world has never otherwise known. You are familiar with the time that Jesus takes specifically with Peter there on that um, water side to help him move past those three denials by giving him the opportunity to affirm three times his love and loyalty to Jesus. And he tells him to get back to work, feed my sheep. There is another text. This is Mark 16, verses 5 through 7. Um, it's interesting the way that this is worded here. And entering the tomb, they saw a young... These are the, uh, three women, Mary Magdalene, uh, uh, Salome, and I, I can't remember the name of the other. But the three women, they enter the tomb, they see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Seems to be an angel. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. You see the place where they laid him. Now go, tell his disciples and Peter... That he is going before you to Galilee. And there you'll see him just as he told you. Now, 
I don't know why. It, uh, the angel phrases it this way. Mark records it this way. I don't know. Um, Peter sometimes is sort of the figurehead, the face of the apostles, so that speaking of his name could be like speaking of the, the whole apostles. But he says, tell his disciples and Peter. If there is any particular reason why he singles out Peter, be sure you tell him. I do have to wonder if it's because of what Peter's going through right now. Knowing how he betrayed his Lord. Maybe this is evidence of it. Perhaps it's not. There's plenty of it otherwise that our king is gracious and that he's merciful and he will forgive. So if you have previously declared, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God, I will serve the Lord. And you have been disloyal. You have not lived under the authority and the will of your king. Your will has not been aligned with your Lord's then he is a gracious king that will forgive you. And we would love the opportunity, if you need it, to assist you in praying to him for forgiveness and encouraging you as your brethren who can most certainly sympathize with what you're going through. If perhaps you are not a Christian, then Jesus Christ is king. And today is the best day that you've got in your hands right now to bow the knee in allegiance to him and declare him to truly be the king over your life as well. If we can see you become a Christian or a loyal Christian once more this morning, please let us know by coming to the front while we stand and sing.